Welcome to the Designers Institute of New Zealand podcast. I'm Will Cook, currently a junior industrial designer at Formworks Design. And joining me today is James McNabb, director of Think and Shift. James has started Think and Shift in 2014 um, and now, six years later, runs an established and award-winning multidisciplinary studio in Auckland. Think and Shift deliver creative strategy and execution in the fields of architecture, interiors and design. They work with high-profile clients such as Les Mills International, AS Colour, Universal Music and I Love Ugly. So James, welcome. Thank you for having a chat with me today. G'day Will. Uh, Not a problem, mate. Happy to be here. Awesome. So uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful sunny Saturday. How's your past week been? How are you you dealing with lockdown? Oh, it's been good. I think the the lockdown lifestyle sort of uh, suits us, to to be completely honest. We've done lots of walking, lots of sort of cooking and it's been it's been relaxing i think it's been a real sort of smell the roses type type moment this whole uh this whole level four level three lockdown so yeah it's been, it's been good and we've, we've taken the opportunity to do a bit of work on the on the business and also sort of behind the scenes as well so that's been uh it's been really beneficial stuff that i've been wanting to do for a long time that's awesome i feel the same way like it's been really nice to kind of take into account what you've got and you know spend some time on personal development and spend some time with the people that you live with which uh sometimes you end up spending less time with them exactly and it, it's been great for us as well we've actually been able to get some sleep we're on k road and oh, it's, been, it's been quiet there's been no one out screaming there's it's been a few few cars up and down and oh we had, we had the odd police chase but outside of that it's been great coming into level two are you excited to get back and experience with k road and some of those cafes down there oh yeah getting back to daily daily um that's that's been great uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a double-edged sword for sure. Like we are, we are really enjoying the, the peacefulness and quiet, which I guess you don't really move to K Road for. But at the same time, there's a lot of energy that comes with K Road, and for us, it's been pretty inspiring creatively. So yeah, look, looking forward to having the people around and mixing them in with, with the crew. I guess so. Yeah, a little bit bittersweet. Yeah, I guess from from a work perspective as well, we're we're pretty okay at the moment. But I think it's it's going to really pick up next week, and from thereafter I guess starting to get a bit more intense and yeah just trying to enjoy the moment while it's while it's still quiet that's awesome that sounds good so for today it'd be good to just kind of have a chat about the story of of think and shift and I'm sort of at a position where I've been graduated for a year now and I'm quite interested in the potential of opening my own studio and running that at some point so for me I'm really interested to hear kind of how how you started thinking shift, where it all begins, sort of from uni to to now, really, and the hurdles you you've gone through. Sure. How far back do you want to go? Like back in sort of uni, uni days when I met met the guys, or yeah, because I know that you you went to Victoria in, in Wellington and you studied design innovation. Um, so something a, a slightly different tack to the classic industrial design. So maybe have a little bit of bit of a chat about that first, and we'll go from there. Sure. Okay. Heading to uni, I didn't really know what design was. I didn't want to do architecture. That was something that, for me, was a lot, it's way too technical, and it didn't seem like it was grasping the real opportunity of creativity at, at the time. And I had a friend that was doing a bit of industrial design, so he kind of pushed me towards this thing that I didn't really know too much about, but seemed to work out quite well. And over that time, we, we were the first year to do the design innovation course at Victoria, which... I guess design innovation was a combination of industrial design, 
uh, culture and context and media design. And so my, my major was industrial design, but it wasn't really a core industrial designer's degree. Uh, it was more of a, a generic sort of entrepreneurship within design. And you could happen, you'd go into these three sort of separate areas. And for us, I think the real sort of difference, I think, was this culture and context, which really helped sort of shape up the design thinking side of things for an industrial designer. So culture and context was basically understanding like the senses and the environment and and why we sort of did these certain things or why we made these decisions. And going back to the senses, like that was a real sort of addition to a person that is moving into an industrial designer's course. Yeah, it, it kind of gives you a bit of additional understanding and reasoning behind the decisions that you'd make in the physical world. My degree was kind of forging and trying to decide culture and context, industrial design, and obviously industrial design sort of came through, but with this slant of culture and context. I guess over, over the years, you kind of learn and you, you kind of get brainwashed to a degree. It's, it's like going through some sort of gauntlet where you kind of get thrown on this information. And when you're a young, establishing person, you, you really take on a lot of information. And I think that really shaped my career from, from that point onwards. I think in the third year, I sort of hadn't really figured out what design really was. And I, I was kind of just going with the flow. And I think it was until my final paper, because we only did a three-year degree, that I actually figured out kind of how design could be applied to the world. And it was a really unfortunate sort of circumstance where a family friend of mine had actually passed away while freediving. It was a really tragic sort of story. He was well-educated on the dangers of, of freediving, which is, which is when you you're out basically snorkeling and you dive down and you might be catching crayfish or you might be spearfishing fish. And at that time, he, he obviously exerted himself and um, basically passed out. And I can go, kind of go into why that why that happened a little bit later, but it was a really tragic sort of time. And I think my final paper, well, we, had, we had a company called Footfalls and Heartbeats that came to us. Footfalls and Heartbeats were doing a smart fabric technology that combined, I think it was maybe like a polyester or potentially a wool but with a stainless steel thread. And this fabric combination basically allowed, well, with that fabric, it basically became a sensor so you could monitor things like stretch or you could monitor heat and it could allow you to monitor your bodily functions. So uh, with that technology, we really started to, uh, well, I, I thought there was a real opportunity to figure out a solution for why my family friend passed away. And I guess that kind of goes on to the whole revival vest project which sort of set the foundation for my innovative sort of background to a degree and I, I learned a lot through that process it was it was really really gratifying yeah so I guess, I guess that's kind of where we where we started yeah and this this revival vest I guess it kind of taught me how to how to research and yeah I, I, I dived sort of deep into trying to understand the the physiology of, of what actually happened and basically he this, this guy, Jacob, he, he drowned off the coast of, of Todong up in Mount Manganui. And what I think it happened was that he was maybe exerting himself and maybe hyperventilating or, or breathing a bit heavy. And, and when you breathe, you, you exert a lot of your uh, CO2, or especially when you're hyperventilating, you exert your, your CO2. And the CO2 is the thing that makes you want to breathe. It kind of gives you that urge. He dived down. I think the pressure was, was quite intense, maybe below five meters, I, th I think, around, around that sort of depth. When you're down that low, the, the oxygen gets pressurized and condensed within your body. It makes you feel like you have more, more oxygen than what's actually there. And he came back up and oxygen wasn't as, as much there as, as it possibly could have been. And didn't get enough oxygen to his head and, and passed out. And with that sort of phenomenon, I, I realized that there was an opportunity to monitor the bodily signs. And that allowed me to connect the footfalls and heartbeats project with 
uh, with that occurrence. And yeah, I guess the, the revival fest went on and allowed me to sort of get a bit of exposure from, from that point onwards. Yeah, I guess it was a crash course into, into design and design business to a degree. Yeah, okay. So did you have that, the business side came from the design and innovation degree? That was something that was kind of threaded throughout that curriculum? Not really, to be honest. I think it was just more the, the inquisitive sort of critical thinking that allowed us to have a bit of confidence that we could take on a business. We were super naive when we first started. Yeah, this, this whole sort of critical thinking meant that we could sort of figure it out. And with three of us, two guys that, that I met at uni, we decided that we would start a company. And we were, we were good mates and we were helping each other on our projects anyway. I think talking was a really good way of sort of getting ideas out there. So for us, it seemed like a natural fit to, to join forces and start a company. Wow. So, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about the context of like what was going on at that time that kind of pushed you towards the business rather than just kind of settling into a, a job in a, in a corporate or something? Yeah, sure. So, so times, were, times were pretty lean back, uh, back in those days. I remember while I was doing my final paper, it was kind of tailing up a session and, and jobs weren't very easy to find. And I remember, uh, yeah, we, we had, I was like getting free, free food basically from this uh, university sort of social experiment down on, on Cuba Street. And uh, that kind of got me through my, my final year and was getting care packages from up at uni and that type of thing. And it was, it was pretty, pretty lean times. We, we re- kind of realised that we couldn't necessarily get a job straight out of uni. Like it, there weren't many kind of going around at that time. And we kind of decided like, well, why not, why not just give this a go? Like we don't have kids where we don't have mortgages. We'd, we're pretty debt-free, risk-free, like, why not just throw ourselves in the deep end and, and give it a shot? So we had some had some connections. I think Dan actually was so there was Dan and Sam, Dan Camp and uh, Sam Griffin. Dan managed to get a job up in Tauranga and his mum was there and Sam's mum and family were, were also there as well. So we decided that having that sort of base up there, we could actually use those connections to start a company instead of trying to find our own jobs. Yeah, I guess it kind of pushed us towards Tauranga and enabled us to to find a really cheap space and to start doing things ourselves and using our creativity in any way we could. Yeah, okay. So you already had kind of a network of of contacts that you could kind of start to get work from or was that something you had to did you have to find your clients from scratch or did you start more with personal projects and kind of drum up exposure from there? So we, we absolutely leveraged the university as best we could. So Dan took a job in Tauranga. Sam and I took university jobs. So we were, we were both tutoring. And at the time, we decided that we would develop a piece of furniture each. Well, I can get onto what I did because there's a bit of a story there. But uh, Sam, Sam did a beautiful lamp, this 3 legged sort of tripod lamp with a metal sponge shade. Dan did a really sort of efficient CNC-based stool out of plywood and I designed this this aggressive looking chair that had all these different components going on it was, it was like a Frankenstein of all these different ideas coming into one sort of object it had these three I had these four timber legs going into a central cross and then it had metal coming out of the timber legs these, these tubes and then it had this like really ornate sort of seat and then it went into this backrest that was oh, it was just all mm. a bit much and uh I remember, seeing, I remember sending it to a friend and she gave me some feedback. She was like, oh, yeah, I think there's probably just a little bit going on here, which was definitely an understatement. And um, I think it was that sort of critical feedback with 
her and then also with the guys that I refined it back and ended up with a simple uh, simple stool, which was the cap stool, uh, cap stool, I'm oh, sorry, the collar stool, American ash timber stool, circular top, and then it had a, um, a cross, metal cross on the very top of the seat, which I think was just enough for detail to make it slightly unique, but also somewhat palatable. So yeah, we, we, took, the, we took those projects and photographed them and moved to, moved to um, Tauranga to get them professionally manufactured. Yeah, that sort of gave us the, the foundation to have some product that was a little bit available. Um, people could see and kind of knew what we were up to. And all the while we were, we were doing full-time sort of jobs during the day. So I would do, I was doing landscaping work during the day. Dan was working at Design Mobile, which is a company that would produce like high-end sort of bed bases, mostly made out of Riemann. And Sam was working at a, uh, replica furniture store which, which was a little bit ironic for what we were trying to do but uh it was a job and, and he was running the dispatch there so yeah between between the three we all worked hard during the day yeah i guess you gotta you gotta do what you don't enjoy doing to figure out that you don't enjoy it right oh exactly <laughs> and without that sort of day daily job it was it wasn't possible we, we needed the income because selling stools and and lamps at the time wasn't going to pay for all of us. Yeah. Okay. So you started. So you did the three furniture products, one each, and then you went to get those manufactured. Was that through those kind of relationships that you already had from Tauranga, you know, or did you have to kind of create those relationships? Was that a difficult process? Was that the first time you went to got to get something manufactured? Uh, we we found it like super helpful just having a few contacts there already. Like. <clears throat> One of the guys that Dan was working for, he, he kind of pushed us into a few different manufacturers, um, told us who was kind of good and who wasn't. And we just sort of sparked up relationships with those guys and we quoted around a little bit, but mostly stuck with the guys that we knew were, were doing good, good work. Yeah, and we also had uh, an opportunity to develop our own space, which <clears throat> was at the back of this, this old art gallery. And so it was an art gallery at the front. There was a framing shop in the middle, which kind of became our assembly area. And then at the back of this long gravel alleyway was this shitty little workspace that was just full of painting supplies and it had paint everywhere and it was just a concrete cold bunker. Uh, but for some reason we saw potential in that and decided that we'd set up shop and turn that into our studio and showroom. And so from there I guess we set up the studio and sort of actually started to become a bit more professional and sort of have other designers sort of come around and mix and mingle with us and it was all that sort of cross-pollination I think that uh, that really helped us grow as a as a young studio. Like I, I know the people in Tauranga were super helpful to help us get up and running so so we yeah completely grateful for their support. Wow that sounds awesome man and so like was that kind of at that point were you still sort of three sole sole traders kind of doing your own thing or had you guys kind of incorporated a business and started at that point uh the incorporation of the business sort of came a little bit later we all sort of knew what we wanted to do we all trusted each other and we just decided that we'd get the product sort of out there but we did come up with the name after quite a long time brainstorming and we wanted something to be really genuine and quite honest i guess that was what we saw as being really important for a brand back in those days we liked the idea of kind of leaving the brand name when when someone sends out an invoice or when you sign off on a 
in the email or something like that. So so yeah, we, we decided on a name called Your Sincerely Limited, which I think was a really nice sort of thank you for buying from us or yeah, had a really nice sort of tone to it. And that kind of became our initial brand name for maybe about a month, maybe two months, maybe even a little bit longer. But after we kind of started using it out in the open and telling friends and going to manufacturers and having these conversations, we realized that that was a little bit fluffy. So we needed to kind of cool it up a little bit, make it not so not so lightweight. Yeah, and then we decided to rebrand, which over the years you can kind of see that we did quite a bit. But yeah, the next, next name became yours, which is also a nice sort of approach to to selling product, giving someone a gift and it becomes yours. It's from us to you, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. But that also didn't last that long, that name, for one reason or another. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Really, um, really kind of personal brand names there. Actually, actually really like them. Yeah, same. I think yours was really successful, but we sort of... After running with that for maybe about a year or year and a half, we sort of realized that there's a company in Auckland uh, called Yours and they and they, uh, they manufactured shoes. And so we, we thought we would just inquire and be like, hey, guys, do you see any conflict with us having this name? You guys do shoes. We do furniture. Cool. Pretty different, right? He emailed back and it turned out that he was Graham Henry's son, Graham Henry, the old uh, All Blacks coach. And we realized that he probably had deeper pockets than us. And uh, he just came back and was just like, straight, no, um, you can't do it. There's, there's definitely conflict. And so that sort of led to another another rebrand for us, which is our third sort of rebrand within maybe one one or two years. And that's when YS Collective, which was yours sincerely, uh, Collective came about, which I thought was, was quite a cool name, a little bit confused, maybe a little bit oh, kind of all over the place, but the symbol sort of YS was quite cool and quite appealing for us to apply that and stamp it to furniture and um, use it across our brand everywhere. But yeah, I guess at those times you're you're all young and not necessarily knowing what ways what and yeah, we we're just kind of rolling with it all. We didn't have an understanding of business. We just kind of went went for it. Yeah. So at, at that point, where you still so you've got you've got your studio space slash showroom. You've kind of spent a lot of time doing that up, and were you still doing that? as a side hustle like were you still at a full-time job at this point or yeah yeah so we, we were kind of working full-time for i'd say about a year and a half from the early sort of uh, i think it was like 2012 through to maybe mid 2013 yeah around that time we were kind of yeah sort of working and i was doing like laboring and landscaping work and by night we would, we'd all be doing design and I guess at that time we lived together just to cut costs and it was like a real sort of incubation period like we we just spent day in day out talking design ideas and sketching furniture it was super exciting we had lots to sort of share at that time and it was it's a really good way to spend our well to get our energy out there I guess yeah and we had help from lots of other people to help us on the way with like getting material so when Dan's first job and when that closed down they get they gave us a bunch of free material like pallets well they're actually like nice looking pallets um with some actual okay timber and then like these walls i think they were used for photography yeah we, we used all that stuff to, to fit out our own studio without having to spend any money on it so we kind of did pallets five or six ways kind of thing like using it to make decking using it to make signage sort of a little kitchenette this big sort of feature facade, facade in our, in our studio, 
divider wall between the two spaces filled with plants and lights. We just used basically all the material and resources we could just to help set us up. Well, at the time we, we had no money. So yeah, I guess it was being resourceful, calling on family and yeah, and just trying to do everything we could ourselves, like doing our own website and doing the brand development, which we had help from a friend, uh, John T. Griffin, who was awesome during that period. Obviously he had lots of work to do with, with us rebranding so often. So uh, that was, it was pretty cool to have him on board. Yeah, it was kind of the way we set up at least and we didn't really start making money for quite some time. When we started, it didn't really seem important, to be honest, but the sort of more it went along, we actually realized it was probably the, the whole purpose of running a business is, is to make money. That was a bit of a uh, harsh awakening. For sure. And so what, what was kind of that point where you really kind of realized that or, you know, that kind of really hit home? Probably last year. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> No, no. Uh, I'd say, yeah, like we realized we didn't want to be working full-time jobs and then also be doing work at night. Like when I was doing landscaping, I, I got such terrible RSI. I was on the spade most of the day and I just couldn't use my, my right arm. And so I started using my left arm when I was doing work and, I, and the same thing happened. And I got to a point where I literally couldn't use both my arms because they were like swollen with such bad RSI that I think we realized that we needed to make a lot more money and um, be a bit more serious about it. And I think that's when we started doing a lot more trips up to Auckland and doing a bit more networking and um, starting to get a bit more exposure and just being a bit more business savvy and sort of entrepreneurial. Um, Because I guess it it comes hand in hand, right? You can't really run a business without the money, but the beginning of the business always starts with like a really good idea and that passion for what you do you know like you just want to have a collective of people that are making really good work that you're proud of and you know that that's that's fun so i mean what were your clients like at that point was it kind of sporadic like were you kind of starting to work with interior designers at that point or no so we, we were actually doing product then so we weren't actually, weren't actually working for anyone or not not until a little bit later on like we, we were a product company selling products that was well overpriced and we had we had people like Simon James. He was our first stockist, and kind of as soon as we we got him, he was awesome. He gave us lots of advice and really helped us sort of establish what we were trying to do. We developed more product for maybe another year, and I think Dan and I had a conversation while Sam was in Pack and Save because we obviously were on a budget or something back back in those days, and um, we, we realised that we hadn't sort of figured out what we learned from uni at that point. We realized that we didn't have proper CAD skills. We could draw a little bit, which was okay enough to sort of get our ideas out there at least. And we're like, what, what do we have? Like our mates who did architecture, they're like super technical. We've got all this knowledge. They can like go and build houses and stuff. And we can just go out there and what can we do? Like make a bit of furniture and that's going to really save the world. And it, t- it took us a while to actually realize that design thinking was a real sort of skill set and that was a weapon like we're able to to really use that with our future clients to actually be critical start to sort of question their processes and things that they've done in the past yeah i guess yeah it took us a while to to actually get clients but we had to sort of change our business quite a bit because when you when you run a product company you you do a lot of dispatch do a lot of packaging you do a lot of selling onto onto retailers we were designers right we were kind of all over the place we wanted to be designing all the time so that's kind of where we we changed from products mostly and starting to work with people 
like New Shoots was one of our first clients and a company called Lugia who did outdoor furniture. So we designed a hammock for Lugia, which was awesome. He, he allowed us to, to do some really cool stuff, but I think as, as novice designers who had not really any idea of how a business should properly run, we well overworked our, our time and we just blew our design fees probably within the first week. But yeah, that was a really great crash course. And, and yeah, I guess from, from that point on, we've, we've been sort of starting to focus more around service and trying to do things to help other businesses succeed where you can cover a lot more sort of design that way but obviously it has pros and cons across both yeah so did that so like just winding it back a little bit you had that kind of first connection with the contextual side of things and the design thinking with the revival vest and then when you kind of went into the furniture design space did you did you cling on to that kind of contextual thing was that the point when that kind of was solidified and it was always going to be a part of the process or was it kind of pure creation and pure expression and then when you got to this point that you just talked about with the company where you thought that it was more about service rather than just a product did it kind of come back then or was it always kind of there i guess it's, it's come back in recent years um doing the product side of things now knowing a bit more about how to run a product business but i think the goal for us back then was to just do as much design as we possibly could and I think that was going to be through more service-based work. I guess that, that was our thinking at the time. But just going, yeah, you know, I guess going back to the, the product side of things, like we were, I think we were just not necessarily knowing how to stick with the business back then. I think we were just really keen to do the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and not actually push something proper, properly hard. So, yeah, we, we, we did furniture. We, we, I think we developed about 12 pieces, desks, lights, we had lots of, well, we had stools, we had a chair in the range. Yeah, just a range of New Zealand-made products, but they were all so expensive. And just trying to retail those, it was just a really difficult operation because we weren't trying to refine one product and trying to make it really cost-effective. We were just designing more and more and more. And I think the, the price points were like $750 for a stool, a single stool. I was like, what? That's, that's just a crazy price. Because that was because we might make it for, I don't know, 200 and then you put a wholesale markup on top of that and you put the retail market on top of that. And to give a retailer an incentive to sell your product, they, they need to get a markup out of it. They, it needs to justify the real estate on their floor. So, yeah, the price point just becomes ridiculous. And I think we really could have honed in on that for, for quite a while. But from a design perspective, we were, we were doing great. Like, we... we we're at the best awards. We had some finalists in that. The revival best at that time won a internet. Uh, sorry, I didn't win. Became runner-up. Sorry, at the international James Dyson Awards, um, which was huge. And that's when we started. Well, it's when I first started to get some publicity and a um, bit of exposure, which was quite cool at that time. Yeah, I guess we sort of went on. And the furniture side, definitely, that, that was our core bread and butter. But I think we realised that to be doing service-based work. And product design, you have to be a little bit more flexible than, than just that. And we took on spatial design as a bit more of an interest. Yeah, it kind of gave us a, a bit of a diversification in a small New Zealand market. Okay. Um, so when was the point where you could get rid of your labouring job and you guys kind of went full tilt into the into the business? Let me just think. I think that was probably around the time of the hideaway chair. We had new shoots approach us probably around the hideaway chair and, and when we did the Delugio hammock. So the hideaway chair was a chair that we designed for, for children. 
fresh out of our design sort of thinking uh, and design innovation course at, at uni, we, we really figured out that there was a lot to sort of researching and designing products and new shoots saw that as, as being quite appealing and um, we created this chair for them after we'd observed these kids and figured out how they sit in chairs actually really different to adults and needs to be all these certain things about needs to have enclosure, needs to have privacy, needs to be comfortable, needs to be easy, easy to be cleaned and and we designed the hideaway chair and that sort of became a bit of a standout product for us. I think that kind of set a little bit of an example that we could do think we could do furniture really well and we could design for others. And I think um, motion sickness is actually our first our first proper spatial client. They saw that um, through us doing our space, um, our, our studio, which we photographed and we built it out of really cheap materials. They kind of saw that that was sort of an image I think that they wanted to align potentially with their brand and gave us a really cool opportunity where uh, they had a beautiful space in Auckland and we designed um, some basic furniture and sort of simple sort of shelving units and started to create a bit of a physical sort of brand image for them and they leveraged the shit out of that and so did we and through that particular job uh, which we're really thankful to have had the co- uh, collaboration with those guys that kind of brought in a lot of exposure and then we had the next space we had the next space after that next space after that and we started to really start to have a bit more of a name about ourselves and i guess all the while we were still selling furniture at that time not much but we were still making a few sales like we had a retailer in australia that would buy a few every now and then um, we had some sales to the us yeah just a few sort of orders throughout the country but definitely the product side of the business wasn't enough to to float us it was, I think, when we started doing more service-based work. Is that when you became Think and Shift at that point after that first job? We became Think and Shift, I think, in about 2014. So 2012, we set up uh, Your Sincerely Limited, and that, that stayed our, our company name. Uh, so Your Sincerely Limited, uh, trading as YS Collective. And in 2014, we thought we'd give, it a, give the service thing a proper shot and we spent about six months looking on the brand, like just trying to figure out what sort of tone we wanted this brand brand to have. And it was these rigorous sort of sessions that we'd have, and, and we're still living together. We're still living together at that point, and so we would would catch up on a regular basis and um, try to figure out what sort of what sort of like images, what sort of work we wanted to be doing, who do we want to look like personally. Uh, we, we set these pretty rigorous sort of brand guidelines. Of how we should look, um, what sort of transport we should be taking, <laughs> all these type of like superficial things at, at the time, but it really did help sort of shape up this brand of of us launching into more service based work, and that was that was service across interiors, well, which we called spatial at the time because we weren't comfortable with interior design at, at that point in time. So it was across spatial design and also product. And also innovation. So it was those those three sort of uh, categories that we wanted Think and Shift to sort of move move forward into. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things. As soon as you start sort of promoting yourself as that, and you've got a little bit of work to back you up in those areas, that starts to happen. You, you become a spatial designer, and I guess through just doing the work and meeting people, we we launched into that quite naturally. Wow. And so from that point, like, have you just kind of been riding the, the jobs through? Like, it's kind of been an onwards and upwards 
than that? Not necessarily. Like we have to be quite innovative with how we got work and yeah, and, and we use things like Creative New Zealand. Uh, we do quite a few pitches with them to get funding. So at the time, they were offering a really great um, quick response grant, which was I think seven and a half k, just for us to explore with, uh, with different sort of materials or ideas, a bit more art based. And yeah, I guess they gave us. Well, we we pitched an idea of combining uh, advanced technical manufacturing like three D printing and collaborating or mixing that with traditional handcraft and. That was sort of our approach of the future back, back in those days. We thought that was going to be the next sort of 10 to 15 years, and it kind of is, but we would use, we'd use things like that to help get us through and, and also trying to meet and find new clients at the same time as well, while also entering the best awards and getting exposure, exposure through that. The best awards was actually pretty great for us. Uh, it gave us an opportunity from Tauranga to come up to Auckland and meet all these incredible people and the design community and through that I think we built some sort of lifelong connections and that also opened up our exposure as, as a company which then led to led to more sustainable work. In terms of getting clients was it more kind of the networking and then kind of laying the like like sowing those seeds and then waiting for them to to come to you or was it more like did you take a, a tact of doing a little bit of work in your own time to kind of uh, show to them and be like, this is kind of what we'd like to do for you sort of thing. Definitely a bit of both. Like we spent a lot of time on our, on our brand and we had some great exposure, which at the time we would photograph our projects and we would uh, write a little description and then send it off to say Urbis magazine or other sort of media out- outlets. And they would, because we made it easy for them, right? They would they'd publish the information pretty quickly so that happened to be a pretty cool way of getting exposure but outside of that we also realized that lots of work was coming in spatial and that was quite natural but um, we needed things like products to sort of sustain and we could see that that was a like very much an international model a company that would do spaces and also product and there wasn't much sort of that happening in New Zealand but we couldn't really figure out why the product side wasn't working so well and so with that, we'd do a lot of like work behind the scenes where we'd actually grab images and start to pull concepts together and figure out how these could be applied to clients. Or we might even say, pick a, pick a particular client and say, what aren't these guys doing? What, what new markets could they be launching into? Basically pull together pitches and send those off to the guys and be like, what do you think of this? Are you interested to have a conversation? We had quite a high hit rate, which was good, but we had had also a lot of sort of failure along that way as well. But that brought in some of our, our best clients. I think like I Love Ugly at the time was, was one that we did where we sort of allowed them to expand internationally from a physical sense uh, through a sort of pop-up furniture set that we created. And I guess doing it that way, where you pitch to clients, it also helps redirect or direct the the brand image or the company that that you're creating so we were able to be associated with the brand like i love ugly or yeah or like ASK or whatever it might have been at the time to to give us that yeah that that brand recognition which i think was really important and so you kind of you started out in in Tauranga and what brought you more into Auckland did, did all three of you come together was that a conscious decision to make or like how did that come about yeah, it was. And I think starting in Tauranga was, was a really great place to start. Like, you know, to a degree, you're, you're a 
uh, bigger fish in a smaller pond. And we had great connections there and had really, really sort of established ourselves there. And, and it was it was great, but we did have a limited client base and most of our work was coming from brands that were up in Auckland. And so we would be driving back and forth, back and forth so often that it made sense for us to actually move to Auckland and, and be right in the thick of it. And I had family there as well, so that was sort of another reason for me personally to, to be there. But yeah, I guess Auckland was, was just a happening place. And I think that's when, when our first sort of shared workspace was developed. And that was with an outfit called The Avery, uh, which we helped establish back in maybe 2014, maybe 15. And so did that come come first that kind of relationship with with starting that Avery and then that kind of brought you into Auckland or did you kind of go let's go to Auckland let's go find a place I don't know what it would have been like at that time but was Auckland still incredibly expensive the same way it is now to find a space and have a studio yeah it was it was really not within our within our means to to find individual flats like I think at the time I, I was living in an old lobby for a house right next to a garage where I had to build my own door to close off the room. I think Sam was living in a shed that he that he made himself. So he's converted uh, like an old garden shed into a house. And I think Dan was living in a, a tiny home with his partner, Ellie, which was just a lot more attainable than actually get, getting a room. So like the move to Auckland wasn't easy. And at the Avery, we, we traded uh, service for a spot at the, at the Avery, I guess. So, so we designed the place which was a great portfolio piece for us, uh, but also allowed us to sort of mix and mingle with, with, with the people that were in there. Trading services was, it was a great way to, to sort of get the business up and running and associate with the right people at the, at the right time. I'm really interested in, in starting my own studio and, and moving in that direction. What's, what's been some of the hardest things from the beginning for you, like from your roots in Tauranga and, and moving up here and kind of to where you are now? What's kind of been the hardest thing or something that maybe you wish you knew more about that you might have handled differently? Yeah, I'll start on, on the hardest thing. So I started with two business partners at Think and Shift and that was awesome. And we obviously started as, as, as best mates. We were such good friends and we still are to, to this day. But the most difficult thing was, was when the first guy, Dan, when, when he wanted to leave. It was a real sort of test and an absolute sort of battle at the time. We just finished a, a sort of massive project for us at the time, um, a place uh, north of Auckland, and it was this perfect sort of mix of everything that we'd been taught at design school. And when that didn't go ahead, it was a massive blow for for us. And I think it was just sort of the nail in the coffin for Dan in particular. He really wanted to go out and do his own thing. I think he would, yeah, I think he was just thinking about other things and, and it was difficult and project not going ahead. So Dan sort of saw that as an opportunity to head out and do his own thing. So yeah, like fair enough, he, he took the initiative, but it was a real, real battle and an absolute blow. Yeah, we, we had to figure out how we're going to pay him out. We kind of broke it down to sort of three things. One was uh, he had a third of the assets. The other was that um, he had a third of the company balance, account balance, and then the so that was the second. And then the third is he had a third of the value that he had created with the brand. And so because we spent so much time developing the brand, he saw that as being super valuable, pushed just really, really hard to to get his value out of that. And I think he personally pushed way too hard and was quite aggressive 
and really put our friendship on the line. So that was that was a that was a huge a huge hit. And then once once Dan left, the business was wasn't quite the same. And Sam and I were also going well, um, but yeah, I, th- I think that we just had a we just had a really hard road ahead. And Sam was also thinking about leaving around the same time as Dan was, and he decided to leave a year later with a lot more sort of amicable terms, and he made it a lot easier for the company to continue. So purely grateful for that. But um, yeah, I think just when you when you start a business, it's always a really difficult conversation to to have. But I think you've got to know what your exit strategy is. Have that in writing if you have business partners, just so that it takes any sort of conversation out because you know exactly what the process is. So I, I, I kind of wish we did that. But yeah, I think time sort of heals all, and and we're great mates again. And yeah, we've we've helped each other along our careers. And I think starting a business is a great sort of baptism by fire. It's it's a way that you can go out, you can learn as much as you possibly can, especially when you don't have any any huge risks and you can always bounce back. But it's best to do it when you're young, I think. Just get it out of, out of your system and you can always find a job at a later stage if you need to. Yeah, I think for us it was, a, it was an absolute crash course. Yeah, wow. I mean, how, how did you navigate that? Because it just seems, yeah, so so intense and, and daunting. Like, you must have had a pretty good network of friends and, like, you know, family that could help you through that. We did, and um, uh, Dins was actually great. The, the Designers Institute was great for helping us sort of with that process. The, the Dins lawyer, James Carney, he gave us some advice um, just around sort of how we should break it up with this sort of three-way split, and then our accountant sort of helped verify the numbers. I don't think our accountant did a great job in giving us or in, in agreeing to those numbers. I, I think they were absolutely brutal. I guess the interesting thing around the whole value side of things was the the way that it was broken down. So we went about that as breaking it down from what projects has a company got on the, on the books and what sort of uh, projects do we have that are sort of coming up potentially as sort of theoretical. What's the then what sorry, what's the value of those that they could bring in? So it might be 50k, might be 5k, might be 1k, might be a hundred dollars, whatever it might be. And then we'd go next to those and we'd write down the percentage of the likelihood of that going ahead. And then that would generate out a number. And then at the bottom of that, we tallied that all up and said, all right, so this is the total number and the value of the brand that we currently have at this point in time, as perceived as the next six months. And then we divided that by three, and that was the value that Dan was given. And also Sam was given too, to, to a degree. So it was, a, well, it, was, it, was a, it was an okay process, but definitely didn't work out in my favor. <laughs> That's for sure. I don't want to go too deep into it but because for me that would be something that would hit me hard and I'd kind of be thinking like do I want to keep doing this mm. like did, did you have that kind of moment or was it always just like nah I'm going to keep the business I'm, I'm going to push it forward and we'll be fine I think the main thing there was that we all saw pr- from pretty early on we saw the business and starting our own company as a as different to each other Sam saw it as more of a five-year thing Dan potentially saw it as kind of a quick sort of baptism by fire, let's get up and running and, and start his own thing at a later stage. And I definitely saw it as a long-term thing. I, I kind of take the approach that if you're going to start a company, you need to give it more than five years. Five years is nothing in the grand scheme of things. So why throw in the towel at three years, you know? So I, I was always keen to stick up, to stick around. And fortunately, when those guys took off, I was able to find some amazing staff. And, that, and the staff really 
help pull things together and we continued and found some some of our best clients and done our best work to date. What's like if I was going to go start my own business and the way I'm thinking about it now, what would be one kind of killer piece of advice that you'd give me? I would say find a good advisor, someone that has experience and that can point in the right direction. I think that's really valuable and it helps helps you sort of plot the the trajectory and, and the way forward. That's brilliant. Well, thanks very much, James. I think we'll we'll leave it there. Really appreciate you having a chat. I've I've really enjoyed it. And thanks for being so honest about everything that's been happening. I think it's the first time that I've heard kind of the full story of Thinking Shift. So thanks for that. It's been it's been great. No worries. There's um that's probably I think the first four years we've we've been going since two thousand and twelve. So there's still a bit more to sort of cover off, but I think that's uh, it's for, for a later stage. Yeah, definitely. We can save that for the next uh, Coco's. Thanks, man. Yeah. Coco's catch up. Awesome, mate. Uh, really, really appreciate it, though. Thanks for um, taking the time as well. No, thank you very much, James. It's been it's been brilliant. So thank you all for, for listening to the Designers Institute of New Zealand podcast. Keep an eye out for the next episode. We'd love for you to share on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where you can tag the Designers Institute of New Zealand. And if you're feeling really, really generous, um, if you could go onto Apple uh, Podcasts and give us a review, that would be really great. It just helps us get out to to any new, n- new listeners that way. Um, so we'll see you guys on the next episode. James, thanks again. It's been fantastic. Thanks, bro. See ya.